0: is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story, coming to you from Gadigal Land. In the state of Queensland, if you're wrongfully convicted or in prison for a crime, there's no obligation for the state to make that right. Since 1983, Australia has declined to ratify the relevant UN treaty provision. It's the only democracy in the world that refuses to do this. So if you spend years in prison for something you didn't do, there's no guarantee that when you get out, you'll be compensated at all.
1: Justice, is it just a word in my head? Is it something that doesn't exist?
0: And for Terry Irving... That's exactly what happened.
1: I carry a belief a you know, sense of justice, that there is justice in the world. But it was sorely tested.
0: Today, the wrongful imprisonment of Terry Irving. It's Thursday, the 19th of January.
2: For the past few years, I've been following the story of Terry Irving an Aboriginal man from North Queensland who, in the mid-1990s, was sent to prison for a crime he didn't commit. Ben Smee is Guardian Australia's Queensland correspondent. I might just get you, if you feel comfortable, just to introduce yourself.
0: Uh
1: Uh-huh. Okay. Um, My name's Terry Irving. Uh, I was born in Sydney, New South Wales.
2: Terry's in his late 60s. He's got a, a long ponytail and a beard. And, and when he speaks, you see the determination in his eyes, but he also comes across as gentle and softly spoken. You, when did you move up to Townsville?
1: I came across to Townsville in um, 1991. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah. Um, as yeah. I start speaking to him, Terry's nervous, but he really steadies and hardens as we go on. And you get the impression this is someone who has been thinking pretty deeply about the idea of justice for almost 30 years. Can you remember much about the, the day of the armed robbery that you were ultimately arrested for? Can you uh, remember much about that day?
1: Um, yeah, we've been over it a few times, revisiting that day in and of itself.
0: Ben, tell me about that day.
2: It was the 19th of March, 1993. I'd um, gone to a pub in Cairns. At the time, Terry lived in Cairns, and he did a lot of odd jobs but was mainly working in concreting. On this particular day, he went into a pub, the Oceanic Hotel, and began speaking to a couple of blokes he'd met around the traps playing in pool competitions.
1: One of the blokes asked me if he could borrow my car. I lent my car to two blokes.
2: That same afternoon, a man walked into the ANZ Bank branch in Harley Street, Portsmouth, which is a suburb of Cairns. He was carrying a sawn-off shotgun, a yellow sports bag, wearing a beret, dark glasses and a scarf partially covering his face. He walked out with about $6,000 in cash. Back at the pub, a few hours go by. Eventually, the blokes come back. Terry gets in his car and drives home.
1: And... I think it was on the way home, I heard something on the radio about an, an armed robbery taking place, but the, a bank had been robbed by a Filipino guy.
2: The suspect was Filipino and driving a purple Toyota. What threw
1: me, I guess, was um, towards the end of that was a regio was put across the airway, so, you know, they mentioned a car that might have been, that was seen in the vicinity.
2: And Terry heard his own car's licence plate read aloud over the radio.
1: That sounds like my radio, and it turned out that was the number that they were broadcasting.
2: But Terry says he didn't think too much of it at the time, and his car was a grey Isuzu.
1: And neither of the guys that I'd like the car to were Filipinos. So, you know, the fact that it wasn't saying, oh, this car was used in the robbery, it was just seen in the vicinity. I didn't think anything of it.
2: The next day, the Cairns Post quoting a police officer, said the man who robbed the ANZ bank was about 183 centimetres tall in his early 20s, medium build, with an olive complexion and wearing his hair in a ponytail. While some of those details kind of matched Terry, some of them really didn't. He was 37, so much older than the description given, and he's also considerably shorter, about 175 centimetres, than the alleged offender.
1: I didn't think that it had anything to do with me. My... Just give it no concern.
2: Yep.
1: And the first time I spoke to the police was um, about eight weeks later.
2: Eight weeks after the robbery, two officers drove out to Atherton, which is inland of Cairns, where Terry was working to interview him about the car.
1: Then they took me back to the um, watch house and um, asked me to take part in a conversation.
2: Terry says police had a conversation with him and that later they wrote up a statement based on that conversation. Now, there's been a lot of contention about that statement right through 30 years of legal wrangling. But ultimately, as a result, police charged him with accessory to commit the armed robbery.
1: And they said that um, they're going to arrest me. Police
2: opposed bail, and they told the court that one of the reasons they were doing that was because he had six fail-to-appear offences on his record. And it later emerged that this was incorrect, that those offences they were claiming didn't actually relate to him. Mm. While held on remand, Terry Irving was investigated and charged as the bank robber. I've
1: got to say that that was the weirdest experience of them all because, you know, just I been processed. I guess it's an experience you have to go through to fully understand or comprehend.
0: This must be a pretty bewildering time for Terry because according to him, he just lent his car to some mates and then he's arrested for accessory to the crime and then charged with the crime itself. What was it like for him in in prison?
1: He got in there and just a crowded watch house, walking around on concrete floor with no shoes on in a crowded thing, everybody yelling and abusing the shit out of everybody else. The fact that we're, I was in a concentrated environment with so many desperate people or disparate people, the main thing that I was able to take from those conversations was apathy. Uh, just a mass of apathy. My voice was nothing. <laughs> the screams and the hollers that were coming from the people who were suffering injustice around there. And it doesn't matter how loud you yell, you can't be overheard, heard over that cacophony.
2: He says the worst part of it was his family. He, he wasn't able to reach the mother of his children, who were, were seven and five at the time, to let them know where he was or what was going on.
1: The pain. Of knowing that, that my family didn't know where the fuck I was, I was unable to communicate with any of them. You know, and then I, I had had life experiences earlier in my in my life as a juvenile. It, it triggered so many bad memories of being locked up, isolated, and just so vulnerable, unable to do anything about it.
0: So what happened
2: during Terry's trial? So the trial began in December 1993, about eight or nine months after Terry was arrested. And from the start, it was a mess. His lawyer pulled out at the last minute. He was still talking with his new lawyer about the case. He was telling him that he was not guilty and wanted to plead not guilty when he got called into court.
1: On the way out, the cop was going, "No, oh, listen, we can't take you back way into the court. They're doing maintenance work.
2: Terry was led through the foyer of the courthouse in handcuffs, which is humiliating for him. and He said felt that it was unjust.
1: I was just in a agitated state and I'm yelling out to people, you know, there's no fucking justice in Queensland,
2: look at this. This is bullshit, you know. But then he gets inside the courtroom, they take the handcuffs off him and call in the panel of jury members.
1: And these are the people I've just been walked past in the foyer and I just... Uh, ..that feeling of being crushed returned again, I just, it was more or less like just a, I was there, but I wasn't there.
2: The jury deliberated for 10 minutes and came back with the verdict. It was all over in a single day.
1: I was sentenced to eight years imprisonment, less the time served in custody. So I was essentially sentenced to seven years, five months without recommendation for parole.
0: How does he process this? in prison this long sentence
2: when terry talks about his time in prison it, it's it's obvious that it had a, a real effect on him he makes reference to the greek myth of a titan doomed to carry the planets on his shoulders
1: some people when they think of atlas holding up the the planet <laughs> i felt like terry holding up like a judicial system we're trying not to be crushed by it
2: He's most emotional remembering how his two sons would come visit him at the prison in Townsville.
1: And their mother had got a job offer over in WA and I begged her to take it and go away because I could not. It was hard enough for me being in there, let alone me to see my boys. Um, There's a lot of things in there that were wrong.
2: However... Terry was determined to fight his conviction. He applied, but was denied for legal aid multiple times.
1: The people that I was asking for help, a lot of the people were like somebody on a beach, looking at somebody drowning and saying, I'll help them, I'll help them, and then stopping because they can't swim.
2: They advised him to appeal on fairly narrow grounds, whereas Terry wanted to appeal on the basis that he was innocent.
1: Everyone I was talking to was saying, Oh, yeah, you need help, but there's a barrier here and we can't get past. It.
2: Terry starts to feel like he's going to serve every day of his seven and a half year sentence. And then, after he's been in prison for about nine months, he meets a lawyer named Michael O'Keefe.
3: Uh, I just got some notes, that yeah. I,
2: points that I talk to. You. No, if I need to, I'll try yeah. not to crinkle. Yeah, right. So, Michael had just moved to Townsville, this is August 1994, after being appointed the senior lawyer at the local legal aid office. That's the same place that had just denied Terry assistance.
3: And one of my first jobs was to go out to the prison to do a duty officer visit uh, of of the prisoners out there. This bloke walked up to me and he said, are you Michael O'Keefe from Legal Aid? And I said, yeah, uh, I am. And he was cranky.
2: (laughs) Michael remembers asking Terry, "Okay, so what's your problem? To which Terry replied, fuck, problem, and started listing his grievances.
3: And I didn't have time that day to see him, but I did say, well, look, grab some papers and we'll talk. I thought, I'm taking a big punt here, mate, because, you know,
1: everyone I've spoken to, somebody said, yeah, I found out none of them could swim. And then Michael... Came back and he said, well, I'll make an appointment.
3: I'll come back and see. And I thought, well, that'll be the test, you know, because no-one's ever returned. And then I got some papers from him, and I thought, this bloke's telling me the truth. I could tell almost immediately. You get these inbuilt bullshit
2: detectors after years of being in criminal law, and I could tell that this was true. Michael was so convinced that Terry was telling the truth that he took on the case pro bono.
1: And then Michael's been with me ever since, counselling me along the way, giving me, (laughs) inspiring me, encouraging me, and all the legal advice that goes with that. He's he's a lifesaver. He can swim.
0: So Terry, in Michael, finds someone that believes him and is willing to put in the work to prove that he's innocent. How did Terry and Michael set about doing that, though?
2: When they started digging into the case, they pretty quickly found questions about the evidence that had been used to convict Terry, and also about the conduct of police. The prosecution case against Terry relied on the formal statements of three witnesses who identified him from a photo board containing the images of 12 people all wearing dark glasses. But... The audio recordings of witnesses taking part in that photo lineup reveal them wavering or unclear when shown Terry's picture. One witness who implicated Terry was initially recorded saying that he he sort of looks as though he might be but. Another said his skin color looked similar, but I'm not sure. And the third was recorded saying, but I'm not, I wouldn't say yes, that was him, not at all. Mm. However, the statements were written up saying they believed Terry was the man who held up the ANZ bank. The recordings also reveal that several other witnesses took part in the photo lineup and said they could not identify the robber from the images. And these were ultimately not used in his trial. Ultimately, it was one of a few grounds that lawyers for Terry Irving took to the High Court. During that hearing in December 1997, The state had admitted that Terry had not had a fair trial. And the Chief Justice, Sir Gerard Brennan, said he had the gravest misgivings about the circumstances of the case. And he described it as a, a very disturbing situation. And the conviction was thrown out in stanta, which basically means immediately after verbal submissions. And then almost five years after he was first arrested...
1: Michael rang me up on the 8th of December 1997 and said that what had transpired on that day.
2: Terry was released on bail a couple of days later, and so he was free, he was out.
1: I remember on the 11th of December as I was leaving the um, prison, I opening the gates up and I was giving hugs and farewells from a lot of people and I said, you're not happy. And I just looked around and I said... I'm not happy. This has just taken five years out of my life. And all I've done, I'm walking out now and I'm on one bail. <laughs> I can't see no reason to smile. The fight has just started. I've, I'm coming off the 10 yard line in a race that's already been bloody run.
0: Next. The flawed process of making things right after a wrongful conviction. What does Terry mean by the fight had just started?
2: So Terry walked out of prison, but he wasn't free. Technically, he was on bail, awaiting a potential retrial. During this time, he was also penniless, and he found it near impossible to find work.
1: I could not get a job. I went to like, Sandling. I said, I can't get a job. I want to get a job. I can't support myself. I've got no funds, nothing. And they said, well, well just don't write anything. they just say you're out of state or you worked in the state. Just don't tell them you're in jail. What? You
2: want
1: me to be woven into this system of it? Now you want me to be a liar?
2: All up, he was on bail for 13 months before the state finally decided not to pursue a second trial. And that was a big moment. Essentially, Terry was innocent in the eyes of the law.
0: So at this point, Terry spent five years in jail. How does someone who's been wrongfully convicted in Australia get justice?
2: Well, it's incredibly difficult. Under Queensland law, which is similar to other Australian jurisdictions, except for the ACT, a wrongful conviction or imprisonment doesn't automatically entitle someone to compensation. That's even in circumstances where they've clearly been wrong.
3: One of the problems is that states, in particular the state of Queensland, seems to have great difficulty in admitting that the justice system has made a mistake.
2: And Australia is really an outlier for this. Since 1983, Australia has declined to ratify the relevant UN treaty provision, and that basically says that if the justice system wrongfully convicts someone, then there's a responsibility on the state to make that right. We are the only democracy in the world that refuses to do so. There is a huge uh, impediment in people crossing
3: that bar, and it shouldn't be that way. There, There should be restitution for people who've been wrongly convicted, and one would think that that should be part of the system.
0: So compensation isn't automatic. You you do have to instigate it yourself. How do you do that?
2: To do so, you have to win a malicious prosecution case. And doing, doing that's actually a lot more difficult than it sounds. So you don't just have to show that you were wrongfully imprisoned. You don't just have to show that um, you've been cleared by the court system. But you also have to then show that your prosecution wasn't reasonable and that it was done effectively with malice. It's said that
3: it's the most difficult of all torts to prove. The whole system is stacked against the exoneree right from the beginning.
2: It's so difficult, in fact, that for many people, the first port of call is to ask the government for some sort of compensation, say that you've been wronged, rather than have to take a case through court. But in 30 years, the Queensland government has only ever granted one person, an ex-gratia payment for wrongful conviction without having to take a malicious prosecution case. That was Di Fingleton. Mm. Di Fingleton was the former chief magistrate of Queensland. She was wrongfully convicted of intimidating a witness and given a $435,000 ex-gratia payment and then reappointed to a job as a magistrate.
0: Right. So the only person the Queensland government has given a payment to is an incredibly powerful person in the justice system.
2: Yes. But on the other hand, if you compare that to the treatment of a number of people, Indigenous men mainly, who have been wrongfully convicted in Queensland, there's a stark difference. Michael O'Keefe raised with me multiple cases of Indigenous men who were wrongfully convicted and didn't receive this sort of payment.
3: And this was just the case right through Terry's case and a, a, a number of other cases of um, Indigenous people in Queensland that I've worked with. I mean, no justice system is perfect. Restitution is one part of the process by which the state is able to acknowledge that it sometimes makes mistakes.
2: What this all leads to is forcing people who have been wrongfully convicted to take you know, a very, very difficult path a potentially long-running and expensive court case.
3: One of the weaknesses in the Queensland justice system is that with many significant miscarriages of justice, I think the state is able to pass on the whole of the costs of its own mistakes onto the wrongfully convicted person and to their families.
0: So you can apply for a payment with little hope of getting it or go through a long court case. What did Terry
2: decide to do? Terry tried everything, really. He applied for an ex-gratia payment from the state government. And separately to that, he also went to the United Nations Human Rights Committee. Um, And in 1999, that committee found he had been subject to a miscarriage of justice and questioned why he hadn't been simply paid some sort of compensation for what he went through. But ultimately, that decision belongs to the Queensland government. They dragged their feet on his application for years and years and and it dragged on so long that a decision went to a judicial review. So in 2009, and this is 10 years on from that UN finding, the Queensland government then abandoned that judicial review process.
0: Why were they dragging their feet and why did they abandon this review, Ben?
2: The government said at the time in 2009 that the proper process for these sorts of cases was for um, malicious prosecution claimants to go through the court system. But, you know, we know governments are historically very, very reluctant to make these sorts of payments, and it's precisely because they're really, really difficult cases and a lot of people don't take them on. So, in 2011, Terry and his lawyers decided the only option left to them was to sue. But that's a very long and complex process, as a case like that winds through the courts. But finally, last year, the Queensland Court of Appeal ruled that Terry Irving had been maliciously prosecuted.
0: So what did the court say? What reason did they give for their finding that Terry was maliciously prosecuted?
2: The judgment is quite complex, but it found that He was maliciously prosecuted because he was first arrested as an accessory to the armed robbery, but was ultimately then investigated by police while he was in custody as the main culprit. That decision was confirmed when the High Court dismissed an application by the state of Queensland to appeal. Now, this is all now 23 years, more than 23 years, after Terry Irving walked out of prison.
1: Happiness has taken all this time. I smiled and I thought, yes,
0: looks like there is some justice coming in Queensland. What is five years in jail worth, according to the Queensland justice system?
2: At the moment, we don't know. The amount of compensation yet to be determined and there are discussions about that that are ongoing but it, it may ultimately have to go back to the court to make that judgment as well.
0: I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that getting compensation for a wrongful conviction in Australia is so hard and that we are such an outlier globally on this issue. Are there any moves to change this, Ben?
2: Look, they don't really seem to be. It's certainly not the top of anyone's political agenda. The voices of people in those sorts of circumstances aren't the ones dominating our political debate around law and order and justice at the moment.
1: You know, nearly... I've been alive for about 23,000 days. 11,000 of those days have been spent involved in this. I, I look at the impacts on my wife. I look at the impacts on Michael on myself. But I also look at my kids. There's a, a chunk of me not in their lives. I can't correct any of that. I cannot. I, I, there's a gap of five years in my life, five years in everyone's lives that I'm connected to because whatever happened, we weren't part of that in each of us. And that's a burden. I still look now, I look at my boys, and and I can see sometimes a person looking back at me that's been shaped by their lives, and unfortunately I wasn't part of it. And I can never, ever repair or fill that void in their lives.
2: Anything else that you would like people to know about your story, or to, or, or to kind of dwell on when they when they read about
1: it or hear it? I guess love is the answer. Love. No, there's nothing real but love. And don't succumb. Don't don't don't, don't despair.
0: That was Queensland correspondent Ben Smee speaking to Terry Irving. You can read Ben's piece on Terry's story at theguardian.com and we've linked to that on the Full Story page as well. In it, you'll hear more about the other cases of Aboriginal men who were wrongfully convicted in Queensland but denied compensation. The producers of this episode are Ellen Lee Beater and Joe Coning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer of this episode is me, Laura Murphy-Oates. That's it for today. Catch you tomorrow.